Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Midwestern Marks podcast, episode eight. I'm back with my co-host, Carlos Burrito, and today we have a very special guest, uh, Bay Area 415, um, uh, here to talk about China, Chinese socialism. Uh, we're going to talk about Israel-Palestine a little bit because that's been in the news lately. Um, we'll discuss all of our favorite works of Marxist theory, and yeah, it should be a great discussion. We're excited to talk to Bay here. So yeah, how you doing today, Bay? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, really excited to uh, be on here and talk a little bit about uh, China with y'all and uh, what's going on in the Middle East, along with some favorite works of uh, uh, ours on the team and whatnot, but uh, really appreciate it. For sure. Yeah, we're, we're pumped to have you. Um, so the first question I want to ask or hear how you would um, elaborate on this or respond to this, um, is China socialist? This is probably... The number one question I get since I started talking about China, um, people, you know, it's a bit of a simplistic question. The answer I usually give is that's sort of an, a non-Marxist question to just look for these sim simplistic yes or no answers. Um, sure. And and we got to look at the context uh, and, and be dialectical and, and materialist in how we analyze China. Um, but but how would you answer that question um, if you were asked, uh, is China socialist? An enthusiast. Uh, an enthusiastic yes. Uh, I would just say straight up, uh, not only is it socialist, but it's one of the most important uh, socialist societies that uh, in existence today, uh, ever since the Soviet Union. Um, it is the largest uh, country that calls itself uh, socialist under the Communist Party of China. Uh, uh, and with the accomplishments that it has done under its system and is towering over the Western uh, capitalistic liberal democracies, uh, I think it is incredibly important that more and more leftists see uh, China as socialist. And, you know, main reasons is, first off, we know economically and, you know, among leftists and amongst uh, Marxist-Leninists, we can obviously say that economically, China is not socialist, obviously. Uh, the means of production is... Uh, technically under the state and it is transitioning towards uh, more, uh, you know, socialistic and communistic pathways. Those are the goals. But currently with having uh, markets and uh, sort of having these uh, special economic zones where uh, there's a more capitalistic element in the, uh, in the economic sector and whatnot, it's really looking like more of a state capitalist or something that Lenin described in his tax and kind uh, sort of thing, which is, by the way, a Marxist concept, a Marxist-Leninist concept in and of itself. You know, but the thing is, is that the major difference that uh, Lenin points out is that, uh, you know, the state constantly in control and the state representing the people uh, truly does make this, uh, despite the economy not necessarily being uh, entirely socialist, it, that's where it matters, you know, because the effort of transitioning a capitalist society into a communist society is uh, socialism. And when you have the dictatorship of the proletariat, when you have uh, all these Marxist communist concepts in play with the CPC on top, uh, along with the fact that they are enthusiastically still trying to uh, go towards the pathway on communism. It's really important that we say that overall it is, it is a socialist country. It is ideologically pursuing uh, socialism and communism, and it, it should be upheld for any Marxist, Leninist, socialist, communist, leftist out there in the world. So, yeah, I think that's a great answer. And one of the things I get frustrated with is, you know, when you look at the history of socialist experiments and the number of, of experiments who have either been completely destroyed by the United States and Western imperialism or have, you know, are in a situation like Cuba and Vietnam or uh, the DPRK where they're trapped under embargo facing constant aggression from the U.S. Then you have China who's found this way to, um, using state control of certain sectors of the economy, using these five-year plans, using uh, the strength and the size of the, the Chinese Communist Party to kind of find a way to continue developing through the, the rules of global capitalism and, and with the sustained um, regime change efforts from the U.S. You know, and then when you have people within the U.S., uh, leftists or socialists within the U.S., 
um, poo-pooing China and what they've done as they've brought all their people out of poverty and managed to, you know, it, combat U.S. imperialism um, the way that no other socialist experiment ever really has. Um, yeah, I, I take the same position as you there. Yeah, one of the one of the things people don't notice is that when the Soviet Union falls, not only are the previous countries that made up the Union uh, up for grabs, but the whole third world is basically up for grabs at the, the hands of imperialism. And China presents a, a, a blockage of that uh, uh, imperialist force. Um, and also, I, I think that, like you mentioned, Eddie, uh, uh, this binary between is it socialist or is it not, and in terms of economics, uh, like you mentioned, Bay, um, is idealistic. It's an undialectical way of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the, the sort of imposition of the, the, the logic of capital that it's either one thing or, or it's another. Um, and so I, I'd like to think of their economic development as a process of building socialism. Um, you can't, yep. especially when you're within the context of global capital, you can't expect the ideals of what the lower stage of socialism looks like in critique of the Gotha program to materialize itself completely in a country that has to function within global markets and, and, and do all sorts of things. So um, what they've done with the alleviation of uh, the elimination of poverty, um, which they mm -hmm. did ahead of their own plans, <laughs> is, mm -hmm. is completely impressive and, and something that every person that considers themselves a socialist should, uh, should praise. Um, Agree, agree 100%. And that was, you know, that was the main drive on why we needed to explore Deng Xiaoping and China 2050. You know, uh, Deng Xiaoping, obviously the modern ar architect of uh, China, uh, what is a lot of both on the left uh, with, uh, you know, dogmatists and ultra leftists and on the right trying to claim that uh, Deng Xiaoping was a capitalist is absolutely a, a misconception. Uh, Deng Xiaoping was a enthusiastic supporter of Mao uh, in the early years and was a dedicated communist during the revolution. And uh, he detested uh, liberalism. He detested, uh, you know, uh, in, like Western infiltrations of uh, China as he was uh, pushing his opening up and reform. And, you know, his famous quote that we're not going to be scared of opening up uh, and letting even foreign investment in because we can combat their influences and it has worked you know a lot of people you know obviously negatively point towards uh Tymanian square as well uh and you know the that's a big misconception on what necessarily happened as well uh with the protest and everything there were i think there was a I forget what it's called, Operation Yellowbird or things like that, but they were sneaking in CIA operatives from the protest through Hong Kong uh, to uh, either flee China or enter China through those protests. And um, that, but to say that, you know, Deng Xiaoping was a capitalist, but, you know, come hard on the liberalism that was starting to perk up after the fall of the Soviet Union it's a tale of two, you know, uh, sort of different pictures that people are trying to portray here, you know, uh, along with China 2050 uh, saying that, oh, we're not going to reach socialism till 2050 or blah, blah, blah. It's more of an understanding of where they, you know, where all these five-year plans and what the, the economic elegance and complexity of these plans. And it's just so, uh, interesting to see the trajectory the ongoing growth and progress of the chinese economy uh building up their material needs and conditions while building up their productive forces for 1.4 billion people to the point where they are eliminating poverty and they are providing high uh high standards of education healthcare, and things like that which people need and at the same time continuing on this pathway uh, towards socialism communism and that's what we wanted to confirm as well and people getting confused with oh 2077 or 2021 uh, uh they're just pushing off socialism so they can appease their you know uh their own capitalistic uh, uh, sort of aggressions and things like that that's a misconception as well uh, and we really tried to defeat that in showing that there's a plan with all this all the success that we're seeing and achievements that we're seeing is planned by the CPC and it should be more 
understood as this is the pathway, at least under Chinese characteristics, that socialism is going to grow and how we on the outside, you know, outside of China has to really uh, learn from and hopefully adapt to our own, you know, societies. For sure. It's, I was telling Carlos the other day, you know, there's a book by David Harvey called Neoliberalism and, and Deng mm. Xiaoping is on the cover. And I was mm-hmm. watching David Harvey talk about capital, you know, not to throw too much shade at David Harvey. You know, he's probably right. more of a force for good than he is a force for bad. But he, right. he uses China as an example in capital a bunch. You know, this is how foreign or this is how capitalism works. Once China allowed these markets in, the whole country just went to neoliberalism, went to garbage. And, and he mm. says... You know, I just want to ask Deng Xiaoping or ask him, you know, did you actually read Marx? Did you actually take the time to understand Marx? I'm like, David Harvey, you can read what Deng Xiaoping wrote about Marx. You can see him, as you said, calling liberalism terrible and, and, you know, saying he's an avowed communist. Or you can read Xi Jinping and talk about, you know, how recently there's been this giant anti-corruption campaign and a move towards, you know, even more. Um, nationalization and, and control by the party so that they can, you know, continue moving to socialism. You've seen them crack down on Jack Ma recently. Um, uh-huh. That was, it, you know, another attempt to avoid too much finance capital into their country and whatnot. But, um, right. and as you said, it's extremely complex. And when I was digging into the details of it more this morning, um, when you look at exactly what the party is doing and how they're, um, combating what the U.S. is doing, where the U.S. is essentially this finance capital dominated hegemonic power, um, whereas China has heavily invested in industry and manufacturing and rail and and also the essential industries that people need, like healthcare. Um, So people aren't paying insane, exorbitant costs on their rent in China because their their housing is publicly controlled. Whereas in the U.S., you know, part of the reason 78 percent of our population lives paycheck to paycheck is because we have this rentier economy um, where um, where people have to pay tons of their, their paycheck every, at the end of every month to a landlord. Um, so you yep. see what China is doing is in direct opposition to the U.S. And that's, you know, the nature of dialectical materialism, that China doesn't mm-hmm. exist in a vacuum. Everything they do is in opposition to a global capitalist system dominated by Western finance capital. Um, so there's all, like you said, these intricate plans by some of the smartest people in the world to think up ways to combat that and to build socialism. And, and a lot of people on the West, rather, th- rather than read about it, it seems like they'd rather just say, oh, state capitalism, you know, I hate it. Right, right. <laughs> and that's another thing, the word state capitalism itself, it's developed by Lenin as a stage that comes right after uh, their attempt at wartime communism. And he's like, well, we, we're gonna have to make some concessions, not on principle, never on principle. Uh, it's going to be risky, but when is it not risky to be a revolutionary? Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, I think it comes from an area of Western chauvinism uh, that mm. people who participated, uh, who did not participate at all in the struggle towards building socialism in China, who are not in the class of people uh, that are in the 850 million that have been brought out of poverty into dignified lives, looking at China, and because it doesn't cross off every single one of their little ideal checklists, they reject it. They'll call it state capitalist, and not in the sense that Lenin used it, but in the sense, uh, in a normative derogatory sense. And it's honestly uh, disgusting. It's undialectical, and it's done by Marxist academics in the U.S. and in the West uh, in, in general that will write books about dialectics and Hegel and Marx. And uh, when it comes to interpreting things in a practical manner, uh, they're the least dialectical of all. Exactly. And that, you know, it's not only uh, David Harvey or, uh, you know, somewhat Richard Wolff as well, two respected academics. Uh, It's really more of this uh, Western chauvinism, I think, that really creeps into uh, these minds. And the thing is, is that, look, I I can't criticize experts because I'm not an expert. I don't don't have their uh, economics uh, degree or anything like that. But I can't say that to to the extent that they are talking about you know richard wolf always likes you know co-ops and things like that and trying to pr- promote this sort of model of of uh, socialism uh, as a, an employer employee versus uh you know worker owned sort of mecha- uh, mechanisms within uh companies and businesses and whatnot uh whereas china and you know 
looking at how Marx and Engels justify the transitional state and how uh, important it is, uh, along with Lenin's tax and kind. Not just, you know, as you said, this was a more of a wartime sort of uh, measure, but at the same time, it was still a measure that they thought it was necessary in their conditions and their circumstances, uh, at least in the, you know, Russian characteristics. And I think that's where a lot of people kind of get tripped up because when I was reading more about Deng Xiaoping, they were going against the Soviet model because it was the only model. You know, it was the model for communism and socialism. Uh, but at the same time, trying to forge their own pathways and things like that, a lot of people were nervous and scared. But now, after seeing the fall of the Soviet Union, and, you know, one of the reasons why I became a Marxist-Leninist was because I looked at the historical achievements and progress of all these companies or all these corp, uh, countries that uh, made themselves uh, the socialist societies they are today and whether or not they're successful and looking at their measurements, their human development indexes and things like that, it's completely obvious that they are, uh, uh, they are extremely uh, successful in, you know, uh, pursuing what they need to pursue. And they have yet, they have not, yet relented on the socialistic pathway the way that you know for example uh, the soviet union and gorbachev and the you know cia infiltration has uh cuba vietnam uh and laos and they're all these countries already existing socialist countries they're not letting up on the socialism they're just you know uh, they're learning i think and that's why china is incredibly important seeing the successes that China has, they are lending a lot towards these, not only uh, already existing socialist countries, but the global South as a whole, you know, and we're probably going to touch a little bit on the Belt and Road Initiative. uh, But for the most part, this has just been an incredible pathway for the global South to really uh, release their chains of the Western imperialism that they've been suffering from for decades. So uh, I'm really... Uh, we're actually, we're still writing the script for uh, debunking China's uh, imperialism or, you know, Chinese imperialism. And we're reading uh, Lenin's uh, Imperialist, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, along with, uh, I, I can't pronounce his name and I don't want to butcher it, but it's neocolonialism. The title is neocolonialism. And uh, we, looking how intense that book gets into the complexities of how uh, imperialism worked uh, in the West while they were supposedly decolonizing Africa, uh, but all the capital was still tied with the French, with the English banks, with the American banks and everything. Uh, And there was no basically hope for decolonization when the capitalists found out that, hey, we don't need colonization. Maybe we just can control their uh, governments through their economies. And that, and I think that's the most important thing Lenin pointed out in his work. It's like, look, this isn't a political maneuver. This isn't, you know, some type of control. This is basic capital. This is economics. Capitalism will grow to a point and it's inevitable that it will start imperializing other uh, backwards, quote unquote, backwards nations. And, um, from there trying to export their uh, the, uh, more capital from their surplus capital and things like that. Um, and what China is doing is it's a really a breath of fresh air to break those chains. So, and we can get into that more a little bit, but ultimately, yes, China is socialist. Um, I'm still proud to say that economically, maybe that's a little bit of a different story uh, or up to debate, but overall I would say China is definitely a socialist country. So, Nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I like what you mentioned there. Um, something you hit on that I think it's quite important, and that's revolutionary for uh, a, a, a world in which uh, socialism is attempting to be built, which is that China realized that the Soviet model at, at one moment uh, w- was not going to cut it for them, that they had to develop socialism out of their specific uh, historical and contextual conditions. Uh, And and this gives rise to uh, what's now termed socialism with Chinese characteristics. And this has been fundamental in the development of socialism in other places in Latin America, 
um, and, and across the world. Um, and you can argue that it has been, it has been also a driving force since it proceeds, uh, since it comes from the, the 20th century, has been a driving force in what's now known as like 21st century socialism, which attempts to do something similar, although they try to detach themselves from the history of 20th century socialism. In essence, what the spirit of it is, is uh, taking the material conditions of the country, the cultural historical conditions, and trying to build socialism from, from there. Um, so I, I, I think there, there were mistakes in that uh, shift that, uh, that China might have done, uh, labeling you know, Soviet Union culturally imperialist and, and stuff like that. But that development of Chinese, uh, of socialism with Chinese characteristics is, uh, is something that's revolutionary on its own. You know, we were able to observe that capitalism shares a similar structure, but works differently in different places. Capitalism in Japan is different than capitalism in the US and that's different from capitalism in, uh, in Western Europe. Um, socialism will too. Socialism will adjust to the conditions of each place and take form in different ways according to those conditions. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we can transition then here since we've been talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and about the, the conditions of the global market as well as you know Chinese conditions prior to the revolution. So let's talk about sort of the new Cold War that we're seeing. Um, so I just finished Vijay Prashad's Washington Bullets. It was a great book. And, and in it, he, he highlights a CIA dossier from like the 90s or early 2000s. And they're saying China is still formulating. So in the 70s, obviously, you have the U China opens up and the U.S. creates relations um, and you have Western investment in, in China. And the CIA at this point is writing, China is still formulating themselves. We don't know what they're going to become, right? We don't know if they're going to go all the way towards neoliberalism and, and join the global financial market dominated by Western capitalists who will eventually, you know, control the Chinese government and this, rather than the CCP. Or, sorry, I, I think I just used the wrong name. It's DPC, right? <laughs> CCP no, is what the Americans yeah. call it's it, It's all right? good. <laughs> it it <laughs> really it. does sink. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but so you see the CIA writing about them like that in the 90s. And then now you look at this new Cold War that's come about um, where China seems to be public enemy number one of the United States. And we know, you know, for sure, a, a huge reason is the Belt and Road Initiative, where these countries are getting uh, getting financed by by China, by these state owned banks or whatever in in rather than the IMF and the World Bank, too, which is, I think, the piece that a lot of people miss is like, it's not like China's just going to all these countries and, and offering them loans so that these countries are then indebted to China. It's countries who have been for years held in poverty by the, the financial institutions, which are completely run by the West uh, that dominate the globe, like the IMF right. and the World Bank. So, yeah, if you just want to talk about um the new Cold War, I guess we can call it, the sort of U.S. aggression and hostility towards China, their manufacturing of consent uh, towards China, or, um, yeah, and China's robe on, their role on the globe as sort of a counter-hegemonic -he power to the U.S.? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, one of the biggest reasons why we're seeing this Cold War is basically uh, kind of a perfect storm of China's rise and capitalism, Western capitalism decay. Um, and when we see, you know, fascism more rising on the West because of the economic decay that uh, people are experiencing, while the government continues to suppress leftist voices, uh, we, it's, it's really a desperation for the elites to uh, sort of hold on to whatever wealth they have. On the other hand, seeing how China is rising to the point where they're eliminating uh, the absolute poverty to the, you know, that is becoming the first country in the world to ever do that in human history with their 1.4 billion population under the CPC is extraordinary. Um, I actually tweeted this about uh, what, uh, when I was rereading Lenin's uh, imperialism, the, he, he literally said, you know, capitalism could have the ability to alleviate poverty, alleviate their standards of living for their people. But instead of using their surplus for that, they use it to export capital, to, gr to grow their capital more and grow their surplus more. Capitalism, he literally said, capitalism will not do that. But seeing China actually, do, uh, actually invest to increase their standards of living and eradicate poverty, that 
I'm not saying that's obviously the one thing that makes them not capitalist, but that's a huge sign that, you know, Lenin saw this, uh, would see capitalism not being able to do that, yet China using their surpluses and their things to, uh, uh, to alleviate the standards of living and uh, sort of the economic situations that most people are over there. And just, just as a side point, I really don't like it when people just point towards like the UN oh, they're just using the UN dollar sort of uh, measurement, uh, 190. They've only increased that 25 cents. And that's technically, that's why they're out of poverty. But, you know, there's multiple things wrong with that. First off, uh, poverty alleviation commissioners don't just use income as the sole uh, criteria to alleviate poverty. There's multiple facets on how, uh, you know, materially, uh, education-wise, their children and, you know, trying to not only lift them up from poverty, but keep them away from poverty. Keep, you know, not let that cycle continue, uh, unlike our cycles of poverty in the United States with our welfare system and everything that just keeps people perpetually there without helping them. Um, and along with that, I always like to compare China and India. And, you know, the poverty situation in India is incredibly uh, out of this world you know uh, I, I just don't like how you know when we see images of uh, uh, poverty in India and their uh, amount of population there and while they are seemingly continuing to rise economically um, but looking at China and how they are still you know they're rising faster they're helping their people better and their their cities and even the quote-unquote poorest regions are, have the, all the amenities that they need to live a good life. Um, but going back to, you know, with all that said, the Belt and Road Initiative has been a huge, uh, you know, not only to say huge in a conceptual uh, context, but it's the largest infrastructure the largest sort of economic plan a country has had for the uh, world in human history. Um, and it was not do it. The United States like to say this, you know, they were trying to challenge the West. It's like, no, we're trying to provide for our people. We're trying to, you know, we have 1.3 billion, uh, 1.4 billion people that we're trying to provide for here. And in order to do that, we need uh, sustainable trading, we need uh, to get to the resources that we need to get. And if that means helping out other countries to building their ports, developing their systems, uh, you know, we're not going to endorse. And this is the biggest thing. We're not endorsing the governments that we trade with, that we, you know, affiliate ourselves with. Uh, we just want to do deals so we can provide for our own people. And if, you know, if y'all need a port to do that and we can get your uh, we can get those supplies yes let's do that we're not going to push you towards privatizing your markets we're not going to you know do outrageous uh, interest on your loans like the IMF and everything like that we just want to make sure that we can have a sustainable trading partner that is capable of trading with us and modernizing with us um, and in order to, you know, continue our pathway towards socialism, what you all do and everything like that, it's up to you. But, you know, when you talk to the global South like that, which has been under the boot heel of uh, Western imperialism, <laughs> I mean, even I, I remember there was a um, there was a lecture. I forget who it was. Again, my, my memory slips me, but uh, they were saying that you know, initially they weren't receptive towards China's uh, trade deals. They were skeptical because all they knew was, uh, you know, we're going to get exploited. We're going to get, you know, torn up. And, you know, one of the highlights that China said was like, we were once like, we were, you know, imperialized. We were humiliated by the West. We were uh, in those shoes. And, you know, in my um, Socialism Chinese Characteristics video, uh, the last quote that I said about Deng Xiaoping was uh, he, he was hoping that China's success would lead the pathway for not only other communist countries, but the third world or the global south as a whole, you know, and to even say that uh, the Belt and Road Initiatives really challenges 
the concept of imperialism uh, in a way that no other, you know, no one really foresaw. Um, it's really, uh, it, it's something that leftists should really study, analyze, but embrace as well. And I think it's, especially with the global South embracing it more and more, uh, it's, it's really something that uh, uh, I think everybody on the left should respect, should support so far, but also study to make sure that it can improve the lives of other people and hopefully advance the uh, ideology of Marxism and socialism. Yeah. I think people fail to recognize too that the absolute domination of, of Western finance capital that's that's come about, especially in the last 40 years, that's been the real, you know, imperialism is still sort of the same phenomenon that Lenin observed, but the the imperialist tactics of the West have changed. And, and what we've seen in the last 40 years is a total domination of finance capital, or even, you know, longer than the 40 years. Um, so like, if you look at Salvador Allende's Chile, um, uh, Chile was getting something like $200 million in financing a year or whatever um, from the from the global financial institutions before Allende takes power. And then when he does, that gets cut down to, I think, two, $2 million from 200. So mm. now you're trying to build socialism and you're trying to run an economy and you're trying to meet people's needs um, when you're being choked off from a financial system and in a global financial system that's dominated by these financial institutions. Um, so you've had the systematic holding of these countries in poverty. And then, of course, as soon as Pinochet took power in Chile, uh, all that that f uh, financing shot right back up. Um, but you have a global financial market that's dominated by the U.S. So without a policy like the Belt and Road Initiative, it's almost impossible for countries to escape poverty, even once they have socialist revolution to actually begin a process of building socialism. And that's why you know, you look at something like what China's doing and, and we think of it, I guess, as innovative and stuff. And, and I, I, yeah, I, I guess I don't understand uh, Western socialists who, who, you know, are super negative about it. I understand they're concerned about imperialism, but it just does seem like Western socialists kind of being tricked by the CIA propaganda as usual. And it's, so, it's so clearly a projection. I'm sorry I'm to sorry, interrupt, but uh, they are going to invest $300 million per year to uh, say how bad the Belt and Road Initiative is. They just passed a bill in the United States to do that. So keep that in mind. Instead of helping people with $300 million a year, they're just going to talk a whole bunch of smack on what other countries are doing to improve themselves. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. It's, yeah, I, I think that um, a lot of it is projection. Because um, when you when you see the critiques of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is it's the only time that I know of that anyone is genuinely in the spirit of solidarity, um, helping to build the African continent and, and mm -hmm. its infrastructure. Um, when you see the critiques, it's really a projection of what the U.S. and the West has done uh, through the World Bank and the IMF, through structural adjustment programs and stabilization programs to the whole world. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot of projection and I, that gets us to, uh, to sort of our, our next topic, which is um, what, what role do you see uh, the acceptance of these uh, propaganda campaigns by those who uh, call themselves socialist or communist in, in the West? Uh, um, how important is it to reject this narrative, which I, I like to call um, when we accepted a, a left delegitimization campaign of mm. socialist experiments. So how, how important do you see the task of socialists that are living within the empire at critiquing uh, this propaganda and at supporting, albeit at times critically, uh, socialist experiments and experiments that are trying to um, be autonomous outside of the rule of Western capital? Sure, I think it's uh, obviously incredibly important, but we also have to admit that there are going to be uh, opportunists and even outright uh, what, what oh, outright rats, I guess you could say, outright you know people that are working for the establishment infiltrating our ranks, you know, that will be uh, promoting this propaganda and will try to push these talking points on unsuspecting leftists and things like that. I mean, uh, it's incredibly important to not only combat 
the propaganda in, you know, the authentic left, I would say, but also the, uh, also to combat the infiltration that we may be facing for those pretending to be leftist or to uh, use this as an opportunity to promote themselves, to talk bad about China and things like that. Um, it, it, it's a dangerous game because if we allow this propaganda and infiltration to win, then uh, this means going into a cold war, as we were talking before. This this is a very, you know, not only armies fighting, but nuclear uh, annihilations and things like that uh, in our minds. It's, if we, if the Western left truly, truly needs to shed their chauvinism and truly needs to shed their biases in order to, uh, see that there are other systems that are, and other places that meet, really don't see this as an authoritarian dystopic you know dictatorship that ruins people's lives rather uh actually looking at the science and looking at not only you know what is coming out of their own state media or their statistics and things like that but uh, actually seeing what other people are talking about i mean uh just yesterday uh <laughs> Radio Free Asia, not, you know, obviously a branch of the CIA, came out saying that Uyghurs, a source, not even describing the source, a source said that Uyghurs were forced to celebrate dancing around uh, on the, I think the, uh, you know, uh, I forget the, uh, Ed, the, 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 the holiday, I forget how it's pronounced. I don't know uh, how to pronounce it either. I know what you're talking about. Though. Yeah, yeah, but they were dancing, they were celebrating and everything like that, and then all of a sudden, uh, that somebody, the Chinese authorities forced them to celebrate. It's just laughably horrible how far the propaganda will go. And But we have to realize that they have a platform built on so much capital, so much financing, um, and it's going to influence some people as ridiculous as it may be. And um, it's not only it's not only our side. I remember I was uh, reading a uh, Maoist subreddit's uh, stance on, you know, if China and the United States goes to war, who would we back? We would back neither uh, because we wouldn't back anybody during World War One. It's an imperialist war. And I'm just like, whoa, oh, you know, to compare China to Austria-Hungary or, you know, Italy, <laughs> It's so, you can't just, it's laughable on how they justify their stances, but at the same time, this is a legitimate, uh, they are trying to be a legitimate portion of the left, but with an analysis like that, I mean, I know a lot of people got in trouble uh, for, say, uh, for saying on that, uh, you know, from this ultra stance, saying that uh, Cuba was just a sugar colony for the Soviet Union, you know, and it's just a terrible way of seeing uh, and analyzing uh, socialist countries like that in order to push this very ideologically pure standard of uh, socialism. So we not only have to face the CIA's platforming, but we also have to say, you know, face these uh, other ideologies on the left that really try to be legitimate, but say, very outrageous things like that and just try to convince people uh, through these talking points as well. So we're, we're fighting sort of a two-front battle, but we have truth and statistics and everything on our side uh, to really show that uh, both of these are just paper tigers. So hmm. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I kind of forgot what I was going to say next. you have anything, Carlos? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that it's sometimes easy to forget that uh, there's not just money going into a direct opposition. There's money going into creating a opposition that seems like it comes from our spaces. And we have uh, during the first Cold War, and I'm already talking as if there's going to be a second one, like if it's guaranteed. But during the first Cold War, we had the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom that did precisely that. It got a groups of socialist uh, or soft social democratic academics from the West. And it created a campaign to delegitimize the Soviet Union. And, and we, like you said, we have two fronts to fight on. We not only have to fight the reactionaries that are clearly our enemy, but also those that seem like they're our friend, but that are either funded or convinced by the funding uh, that's created precisely for those ends to create a left delegitimation campaign 
to these socialist experiments. And, and MLs get a bad rap too. Like you guys, you know, blame everything on the CIA. Like you were just saying, a bill just passed, you know, spending millions of dollars to badmouth China's economic programs. Like no. there are millions and millions and millions of dollars being pumped into to pushing um, propaganda, right? So like right. people are, are like, how could they fake an entire genocide, right? How could, you know, the U.S. media fake an entire genocide in Xinjiang? I'm like, they've done it multiple times. Every single right. time we invade a different country, there's some heinous human rights abuse with very limited evidence other than blurry satellite images. And then the U.S. uses that as justification to destroy an entire country. So it's like, exactly. it's not that MLs are hyper paranoid. It's that we've been studying this stuff intently for a long time. And we've watched these patterns that play out again and again and again, where the State Department says, oh, human rights abuses X, Y, and Z are going on. And all of a sudden, half the Western left goes, you know, you're a tanky if you don't acknowledge these things. Um, and right. then and then after the U.S. destroys the country, then these these leftists are like, oh, yeah, you know, I guess you guys were right. But oh, well, by then it's too late. Right. And that's the most frustrating part um, when we, we do face legitimate voices that buy into this propaganda, but they don't realize how deep and complex this propaganda has been not only historically I, what frustrates me is that these operations are now open to the public declassified documents and we know that you know from jfk trying to plot a terrorism attack in miami and blame the cubans all the way to uh trying to uh inf like Billions of dollars were sent to Gorbachev uh, to win the election so they can continue to delegitimize the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I remember there was a tweet. I, I really want to look into this um, on how uh, the uh, CPC was actually kind of going through the same thing in the early 2000s and the late 90s with a lot of uh, American infiltration in the party. However, the uh, CPC was able to hack into the uh, CIA's mainframe and not only discover who was who in the uh, CPC, who was a uh, CIA operative, but they discovered that 21.3 million people work for the CIA worldwide. 21 million people. And it's just like, they are everywhere. It is more intense than we think. I mean, I think this wasn't even like a leftist uh, source. This was from the Economist uh, admitting this. You know, and this is not a conspiracy theory. And they they discovered 21.3 million uh, people that were at least under the guise of the CIA, whether they were being paid or actually coming from the CIA themselves. You know, the the network is intense, and the undermining that they do along with the amount of money that they have uh, is not only happening on fox news but our spaces as well you know and even in the sometimes even in the heart of these uh countries as well so it is something that we do have aware of and but to say that um <laughs> i always say that oh you blame everything on the cia is like Yes, we do, <laughs> because they do do it. Like they, and obviously not 100% of the time, but at the same time, when you look at the amount of funding and intensity of the their networks, you just have to say, I, I would not be surprised if there are at least fingerprints left uh, when something goes wrong in uh, these countries, whether it's a riot, whether it's a protest of the opposition, uh, or some type of food shortage, uh, electrical shortage, and etc. You know, the CIA definitely has a hand. So, yeah, and even when it's not direct, like you said, there's indirect means uh, by which those funding attempts uh, affect. There's this one uh, quote message thing. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this, but from a, a Cuban folk singer, Silvio Rodriguez, where he says that Cuba was not given an opportunity to fail. And that's not mm -hmm. just because of the direct influence that the empire and the CIA have on the country, but because of the resulting mistakes that might be made because of those pressures, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we also don't realize that even in the mistakes that, uh, that are, their source might be more directly in, in other places, um, they are also influenced by the other sorts of pressures. I mean, just think about how one acts, if we take it back to the micro level, level 
um, when one is under uh, constant stress or constant pressure, your actions are influenced by that, right? You can't right. just, uh, you can't bracket that out of your life and, and function fully rationally while you have all of these things going on. So it's, it's not just the stuff that the CIA does, but it's also what they influence because of what they do uh, that we right. have to look at. Right. True. And I just want to bring up so people are aware, um, one of the main outlets right now pushing anti-China stuff is this Epic Times, E-P-O-C-H. Watch out for that if, you, if you're not aware of it. It's a, it's a propaganda arm of the Falun Gong, which is this like super far right cult um, backed by also right. Western interests. And what I thought was right. interesting about that was they also, uh, Epic Times pushes QAnon really hard. And there were right. members of the Falun Gong who showed up at the Capitol riots. So then you have corporate media blowing a gasket about the Capitol riots and talking, you know, about the unique evil of Trump compared to other presidents and, you know, some of them accusing Russia. It's like the CIA has literally bred this, right? You have people that the CIA, these extreme right-wing groups that the CIA has been funding to try and destabilize countries who then, you know, end up showing up at the Capitol riots. Um, right. I, I don't right. know. People just do not realize the, the level of money and the, the concerted effort to destabilize any left-wing movement around the world. Exactly. And, and you know, I think that shows, uh, unfortunately, the power of capital and financing the, you know, we are still, uh, that our society still has and uh, whenever people say, oh, you know, if communism and socialism is so successful, why isn't it popular? Why isn't it supported by people? You all should have a party that, you know, uh, gets votes and things like that. It's like, no, no, no. There's, you know, there's a reason why the, you know, two-party system here is heavily funded and heavily favored uh, for these two parties. There's a reason why we're not growing. Uh, but at the same time, our influence is growing among people. Um, to even say, to even imagine even 10 years ago under, you know, Bush or Obama, that the that socialism would rise uh, to uh, conversations that we're having today, political discourse that we're having today, it would have been like, what's, you know, that's sort of, you know, irrelevant or unheard of. But now it's, you know, in the forefront of everybody's mind uh, because not only of, you know, discourse changing through, for example, the Bernie Sanders campaign and saying, you know, how socialism can help a very warped sort of, you know, westernized uh, concept of socialism that thinks Norway is socialist for somehow some way. But um, at the same time, it does open up the doors to kind of have a, a discourse in the West about socialism, how it, it it has the potential of being a better system. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, kind of putting all this in full circle, I think China has been doing a great job in combat combating all of this uh, with their successes. They're, um, with their anti-corruption campaign, they've been really sweeping out all these uh, infiltrations as well. Um, I know Maoists have been saying, oh, they're arresting, you know, Maoists that are just handing out pamphlets and things like that. But I actually had a meme that that said that, you know, quote, they are just pamphlets, but they are actually, um, you know, almost pseudo conservative talking points that are anti-union uh, for the destabilization of uh, the CPC and, you know, just causing a, a, a ruckus rather than actually helping workers themselves, you know. Uh, so it's something that we got to watch out for. But ultimately, um, we've been we have we have the truth and we have the facts on our side to really show that people are uh, being helped and be living better lives under our system. So as long as we continue pushing that, but in better, more unique ways to combat both left and right influences, we'll be good. True. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to add quick that I drew the ire of some some Maoists recently or our website did it's um very odd the the 21st century Maoist tendency um a lot of them just seem very 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 ultra but yeah right right I one of the things I wanted to touch on before we hop on to another topic is that um we mentioned how China is is uh, socialism in China is not only helping Chinese people in lifting 850 million of them out of poverty. It's not only helping the global South, but it's helping American socialists and the cause mm. of socialism in the US. Uh, mm. Because what has kept 
the working class in the US dormant and, and relatively comfortable in comparison to the working class around the world has been our status as an empire. And as China is creating a counter hegemony to the US, it is creating the conditions for the US to no longer have those resources to expropriate from nations because now they're allying with China. And that is right. gonna create the conditions in the US whereby a revolutionary struggle uh, is more, um, has better ground to grow than when we had hands all over the world uh, capable of bringing the resources of the world here and pay, paying our workers uh, to have better lives. So uh, the situation that's going on in China is benefiting, uh, the growth of China is literally benefiting everyone. And it's creating the conditions for the fall of the empire and the grabbing of power by the working class in the US itself. Um, and that last point of, of China helping the US and, and the cause of socialism in the US is not something that I usually see people talk about. Um, it's a thesis that Marx understood towards the end of his life and that uh, revolutionaries from the global South have understood that the empire is gonna fall from outside. Uh, once it's not able to ex exploit and expropriate the rest of the world, it will itself dissolve. And I, I think that China is helping uh, that process come about. Yep, 100%. Yeah, you can never predict you know, um, the future, you know, but it does look like things are trending that way. Um, it seems like it, so. The owl uh, of Minerva flies at dusk, so. <laughs> uh, do you guys want to hit our last question here? Uh, um, just thought it would be fun. Everybody maybe share your favorite work of Marxist theory, why it's your favorite work. Um, and yeah, you want to go first, Carlos, actually? Is this something you'd be good at? Uh, maybe I won't be good at because I'll pick too many. <laughs> but uh, well, as a philosopher, I naturally tend towards like the, the early self as I I think it's really great, especially reading together the, the shift from the manuscripts to the German ideology is just, chef's kiss is fantastic. But um, I am a, a fan of capital. Um, and I, I think it's beautiful because if I had to live in an island and just have one book, I, I think it'd be capital. It has a little bit of everything. It has great prose. It has a beautiful economic analysis and, and it still has- Which uh, volume? The first volume, the first, first volume. volume. Yeah. Yeah, right. if you can have the whole set on an island yeah you'll be set though if i if i can use that as a hack as a loophole so when someone asks me i'll just say capital and then i'll be like oh no i meant like all three and then like there three you go. Surplus value. <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right i guess i can go next my favorite was lenin's imperialism because i studied i got my degree in politics and i learned you know studied a lot of geopolitics but i didn't really start to get into marxism till the end of my senior year and when I read that book after studying the world for so long and, and the U.S.'s role in the world, I was like, ah, everything clicked for me. You know, I'm like, oh, so you're telling me this guy predicted everything that was going to happen in 1917, where, you know, capitalists monopolize and export their capital overseas. Um, uh, so that kind of made me realize, you know, the, the usefulness of theory and when you apply Marxist theory to the real world, how it's how it's really illuminating um, for why things happen. Hmm. Most definitely. And if uh, I'm going to jump in, I think my favorite works is actually one of the main reasons why I become, became a Marxist-Leninist was uh, Stalin, uh, Stalin's foundations of Leninism. Uh, hmm. I think uh, Stalin has really a way with words, I guess, for me, that's pretty uh, direct. But uh, the way he described how uh, Leninism functioned, uh, especially for me, back in the day that I was just sort of a ambiguous socialist, not really knowing the differences uh, between socialist, socialistic ideology, other than, you know, trying to uh, help workers take over the means of productions and, you know, how bad capitalism is uh, that the foundations of Leninism really set the stage on why it is incredibly important for the state to mobilize and be used for the people. Uh, for any sustainable revolution to just be successful overall. And that's, for me, that's what made me uh, differentiate between anarchists and their uh, ideological or their idealism uh, and the uh, Maoists uh, or, you know, ultra leftists that uh, were really trying to eye for this idealism that just wasn't, uh, you know, dialectical or down to earth. So 
def I, 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 everybody says read state and revolution, but I say, you know, if you really want to be a communist, really want to be a Marxist, read the foundations of Leninism. Yeah. I like that you, uh, recommend Stalin there for me I almost feel like ashamed to say it to people in the west even in left or socialist circles uh dialectical and historical materialism by Stalin was one of the first books that actually helped me start understanding dialectics and I always recommend on contradiction to people when they want to understand dialectics but that book is great like you said um not that Stalin wrote a lot of super innovative stuff but he has a very direct way of explaining um these very complex concepts uh, in Marxism. So I think he's definitely worth reading, especially if you're new to, to Marxist theory. Most definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, you, can, yeah, you can't bring up Stalin anywhere, they'll, they'll call you crazy, but he does have a lot of helpful uh, works, uh, his expansion on, on, on nation's right to self-determination and, and mm. Uh, it's just absolutely, and, and the economic plans, the five-year plans are great towards understanding what was the first, I guess, real socialist experiment. Right. How was it working? What were the attempts that they made? What can we learn from it? Um, so, yeah, read everyone. I, I encountered a, a professor once uh, who called himself a Marxist, but I brought up Stalin uh, for some reason. I don't know. He was like, oh, don't even bring that name up. <laughs> wow. like, we gotta at least be able to talk about it uh, <laughs> and i was right, gonna say uh wd du bois uh wed du bois did a lovely uh i think epithet or uh something yeah. really praising stalin his speech was phenomenal we shared yeah, we that did. on our instagram page and we got no one's we've never had the audience that angry at us since we started the website <laughs> our, of course. Our, our comment was like um your favorite leaders loved stalin <laughs> people were so mad Seriously. you might not like stalin but your favorite leaders do or your favorite yeah. leaders do. <laughs> exactly exactly and I, you know that we have a lot we have a lot of demystifying to do, to be honest, but, uh, you know, hopefully we will, we will continue pushing onward with, you know, what we need to, uh, you know, sort of, uh, deconstruct these sort of animosities and antagonisms from other people, but, uh, we will win. I feel like it, it is, as Mark said, it's inevitable, you know, so one way or another, we will have to, uh, we will have to figure out how to engage with them appropriately, but by, you know, pushing our own platforms, it's going to be really important that uh, we show this other side. So. Absolutely. So speaking of that, do you have anything you want to shout out uh, before we go or any last words or advice for our audience here? Sure. Just, you know, first off, thanks again for inviting me. This was a great dynamic conversation. I really loved it. Uh, you know, I really want to push everybody to, uh, this is a really important economic time for everybody to kind of understand why our conditions are the way that they are from either understanding China all the way to our own, uh, why people are qu quitting uh, minimum wage jobs and there's, you know, a quote unquote labor shortage when in reality there's not. Um, you know, all the way to uh, something that we you know, uh, probably didn't mean to skip, but Palestine and Israel, you know, mm. uh, something that uh, we is obviously in forefront of everybody's mind, but it, it, this isn't a war between two nations. It's, a, it's an apartheid, you know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an incredible, uh, uneven uh, fight between one that's backed by the United States with billions of dollars and another that is just uh, uh, a native people trying to survive and trying to thrive. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know if your audiences know Hakim, but he recently posted a, a, a great tweet uh, recommending a book. Let me see if I can try to find it. Um, a palace, uh, basically the history of Palestine um, talking about the, the, the conditions that they had to go through. It's, it's uh, Ilium Pape, uh, P-A-P-P-E, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Uh, uh, and John, uh, John Pilger is quoted on the book as well. But uh, basically, he emphasized how important this book is in understanding Palestinian struggle. So uh, we are actually going to do a video comparing 
Western propaganda with Xinjiang and Palestine um, that uh, will come out next week mm. and um, trying to show everybody that not only the hypocrisy is real, but it's no longer a hypocrisy that we have to uh, point out. It's something that uh, it's a contradiction that we have to fight against. Um, there's no debate anymore on why this thing is existing. We now understand that it exists because uh, capital it exists because of uh, imperialist interests and we cannot debate why now we have to fight, you know, so um, forget about Xinjiang, focus on Palestine and really focus on the, uh, helping those people uh, struggle for liberation. So. For sure. That's awesome. Yeah. We're, we're super glad to have you on our show. I think this was a great conversation. Um, it'd be fun to do it again sometime. Uh, so thank you for all your great work combating these myths, you know, some of the, the most important myths being pushed by the State Department and by um, the U.S. capitalist class right now are, 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 the one, are what you're trying to debunk on your channel, and that's really worthwhile. So everyone check out Bay Area 415 on YouTube, Bay Area ML on Twitter, I believe. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. For sure. Thanks for being on, Bay. It was a pleasure talking to you. Definitely. All right. See you later, everyone.